0: This expert insight session was recorded in front of a live webinar audience on the 28th of July, 2021. The topic was successful conversations about mental health with adolescents. On the panel we had Rosie, our lived experience representative. Dr. Sarah Barker, clinical psychologist and training facilitator at the Black Dog Institute. Dr. Sophie Lee, clinical psychologist and researcher at Black Dog Institute. Chairing this session is Dr. Carol Newell.
1: everyone. Welcome to this month's edition of Expert Insights, Successful Conversations About Mental Health with Adolescents. Thank you everyone for joining us. Before we get started, just want to give my acknowledgement to country. Uh, the Black Dog Institute acknowledges uh, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the first inhabitants of this nation and as the traditional custodians of the lands where we live, learn and work. I'm broadcasting from um, Kurungai. Chase, uh, and that is the Darog people or the Dara Morogal people. We recognize all Australian communities who through their lived experience helped to guide the research and resources developed at the Black Dog Institute. So welcome everyone. First up, I'm Carol Newell. I'm a clinical psychologist and I'm the moderator um, of this podcast that we host uh, every last Wednesday of the month. Um, And we have a fantastic panel lined up for us. We've got Rosie, Dr. Sarah Barker and Sophie Lee. So we might start with Sophie. Sophie, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and um, your expertise in this area?
2: Yes, yeah, sure. Um, so hi, everyone. Um, my name's Sophie Lee, and I'm a postdoctoral researcher and a clinical psychologist at the Black Dog Institute. Um, I've worked as a clinician for um, a bit over 10 years now. And um, during that time, I've worked with adolescents and young people specifically. So I actually started my clinical career um, working in the early psychosis um, area. Um, and have since continued to work uh, with young people. Uh, In terms of my research, my research area is in youth mental health, um, and at the moment at the Black Dog Institute, I'm developing and evaluating a digital CBT intervention um, that's specifically
1: designed for 12 to 16 year olds. Fantastic. Thanks, Sophie. Rosie, tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Hi, I'm Rosie. I'm the lived experience representative. Um, So I struggle with an eating disorder throughout my adolescence, but I'm now completely recovered. And I'm also living with depression and anxiety. I find it really fulfilling and rewarding to share my experiences in the hope to like reduce stigma, raise hope. And I've recently become a youth peer support worker as well, which is lots of good fun.
1: Welcome, Rosie. Thank you. We'd love to hear about your experience, especially, you know, giving our audience some tips about um, how to work and talk uh, to young people because you've had experiences with health providers throughout your adolescence with health providers. Now Sarah, um, please introduce yourself.
3: Okay, I'm Sarah Barker, I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, I've worked, well I've actually always been drawn to working with young people. I always think of it as the silver lining of my work. I um, started off researching in my research, doing um, research on CBT and anxiety in secondary schools, a program um, for young people and then since then all my jobs have really involved young people. I've worked in refugee um, youth mental health. Um, In Italy I worked with university age students and back in Australia I've worked um, with young people in secondary schools a lot and now I'm working at Black Dog and also uh, in a small private practice with young people and adults too.
1: Hey Sarah, was it a conscious decision to work with adolescents or did you kind of fall into it? How did you end up moving into the area of adolescence
3: no it wasn't conscious I just started doing it and thought wow I love the frankness of young people I really liked the honest sharing I loved that you could get to the guts of things quickly and I also loved that it's a beautiful point for prevention too and for setting up yeah helping someone yeah get their life um set up for how they want it to be too so yeah I really enjoy that aspect of it too
1: Fantastic. What about you, Seth? How did you end up working with adolescents? Was it a conscious decision or was it just that the research opportunities kind of came up and you sort of fell into it?
2: Uh, I suppose for me it was a bit of both so uh, one of my um, clinical placements when I was training to be a clinician was um, in early psychosis and um, like Sarah I just really loved working with that age cohort Um, it presents its unique challenges but also its unique rewards Um, and so I always knew that that was an age group that I liked working with. Um, and similar to what Sarah said as well, I think that there's, there's a unique opportunity to intervene at this point when things are very tumultuous, like there's a lot going on for, for teenagers, um, but there's an opportunity to do a lot of good um, and and prevent, um, you know, ongoing Um, ongoing problems and and, uh, make sure that functioning um, is as good as it can be um, as as they progress into adulthood. Um, And in terms of the research, it's the same sort of thing. Um, There's challenges that I think we need to address in adolescence um, that we don't experience as much with adults um, around engagement and um and treatment uptake and those sorts of things and and there is just that unique opportunity to try and um work out the best way to uh to provide treatments and interventions to young people that are acceptable to them um so they're they're happy to come and, and get the help that they might require
1: yeah So let's get right into it. Let's go to the first question, which is, what are some of the best ways, really, to engage adolescents and build rapport with a young person? And this is for everyone, because I like to hear Rosie's thoughts as well, because I get the perspective that as clinicians, we have our techniques, but I want to hear from Rosie as well in terms of, what what she experienced you know what were some of the really good experiences with health providers so I might turn to Rosie what do you think what are some of the best ways to to build rapport for a young person coming in to see maybe a psychologist or their GP to talk about their mental health
0: I've actually personally always found it most helpful when um, a health professional introduces themselves, not only through their clinical background, but also a little bit about who they are as a person. Just disclosing a couple of fun facts about them makes them seem that little bit more human. Um, And also just as you build a rapport, I've always really appreciated as well when um, they've kind of disclosed like a a bit of a personality for, oh yes, I used to struggle with that too, or with these thoughts and here's how I cope with it, or here's how I managed it. Random um, offbeat comments about their children and stuff just makes them seem that bit more approachable and less of like um, a person behind a clipboard.
1: So moving a little bit away from that clinical, you know, really professional approach and, being more human in that clinical context. That's really interesting because I do remember our training, and Sophie and I, I think we may have gone through a little bit of training together as well. We have this very, um, you know, I, I, I do recognize in CBT, for example, that we're really trained not to reveal too much of ourselves and not to disclose too many things about our personal lives. Do, does that hold with adolescents, Sophie and Sarah? I might go to. So first, what do you think? Um, I was really interested to hear that from you, Rosie, because um,
2: I, I I agree. I think um, to develop that that therapeutic rapport and warmth, um, being too clinical and too closed off um, can be quite um, alienating. Um, on the other hand, like I do think it's important to find that balance. Um, uh, to you know make sure the focus is, is on the person that's seeking the treatment and not necessarily not necessarily the clinician. Um, but certainly young people seem to be more interested in their clinician's life, um, as far as I can tell <laughs> anecdotally, than perhaps adults that I see um, that I see clinically. So yeah, so I, I'm not surprised to hear that from Rosie actually.
1: What about you, Sarah? Do you think that young people, have you had that same experience as Sophie, that they, you know, want to know more about you?
3: Yeah, I think, um, I I certainly think it helps with rapport building. I think it's a really good point you make, Rosie. And I, I think probably even just through, meeting regularly you do actually end up sharing you know how you think and how you are it it comes through you reveal you say oh yeah i get that you know that's that makes sense so yeah i think that is a really important um aspect of it too yeah Yeah.
1: absolutely Um, so what are some of your tips sophie and sarah in terms of building some rapport with adolescents from a clinician's point of view let's start with sophie <laughs> All right. I'll start. <laughs> um,
2: I think like working with young people, working with adolescents, um, one of the things that I always keep in mind is that it's been a while since I was an adolescent myself. Um, and what is important to me now um in my life um might not be important to an adolescent client. So really just being mindful that um what is important to a young person, what their interests are, what their values might be. um, It's really important to focus on those things. Um, Another thing that I'm always very aware of, um, which is sort of related to that point, is that what distresses a young person might not be necessarily what would distress an adult. Um, And so I always try and focus on the distress and the reaction to the event rather than what it was that caused the distress in the first place. Um, because sometimes that can be a little harder to empathize with if it's something that is not something that is concerning to you or not something that in your point in life you um, view as particularly important. And an example of my, that of that might be that um, you know a young person might be extraordinarily distressed because of a situation that has occurred with their friend um, like in in a friendship and Um, As an adult, you might think, oh, that that will resolve over time or, um, you know, that will sort itself out. It will be okay." But that might not be the way that a young person reacts to a situation like that. So always just keeping in mind that what's important is is different for a young person, but it's important to validate the distress that they're experiencing and acknowledging that what's important to them might not necessarily be what's, what's important to an adult.
1: Absolutely, because, you know, it's their world at that point in their lives, right? And I think you're right, you know, being, stepping back and seeing it from an adult lens, because we've kind of seen the story, we, we know that things resolve, but at that point in an adolescent's life, They don't know that these things resolve or how they resolve, right? So, I think you make a very good point. What about you, Sarah? What are some of the things we need to keep in mind to really build that rapport?
3: Yeah, I like to. I agree completely um, with Sophie. Interests and values, I think, are really important. Showing an interest in their relationships. I always think too. I don't really know a person, a young person, before me until I can kind of imagine twenty-four hours in their life. So I like to, yeah, get a sense of what the rhythms of life are um how they like to spend their time what they like to do that really is helpful as well and i think also um yeah being predictable as well um listening between the lines too because sometimes what people will say things or continue to talk about things and hearing what the yeah hearing what they're um trying to say i think too doing what i say i'll do and um yeah um that I will do for them is really important too because I often think for some young people they might not have many adults that they've been able to trust in their life or who've been predictable or who've done the things that they'll say they'll do so that's really important to me to do that and I think even that comes down to things like punctuality I'll try and really be punctual as well because I think if someone is waiting extra 10 minutes or 15 minutes which sometimes does happen unfortunately but I'm always very apologetic when it does because I think that's Yeah, that predictability is important too. That's part of trust and rapport as well.
1: That's really interesting. Rosie, I see you nodding because I I wonder whether sometimes when a young person's in a room with yet another health provider that there's such a power difference right they might be seeing quite a number of health providers especially if they're quite unwell right they've seen the GP they've seen their psychiatrist um and and they're sitting down for another time and then you've got somebody who's not punctual or maybe they're even answering their phone in the middle of a session I mean that's really tough for potentially a a young person because they may not have that same power in the same room have you ever had that experience Rosie
0: um, yeah, I have. I've been lucky to have some really great experiences, but also unfortunately some really bad ones. Um, I've had uh, people take phone calls and check their phones during sessions. There was one time that uh, he didn't have an office, so we just went to this random storage room and people kept on going in in the middle of our session to pick up papers and things like that. And um, I actually really appreciate what Sarah was saying because um, while a little bit of lateness here and there is very understandable there have been times where I've had health professionals be hours late um, and it does you don't realize it at the time but later when I was a little bit older it did make me realize how my time felt like it wasn't that valued and sometimes it does begin to feel very transactional that I'm just like another person among a bunch of people that they're seeing. Um, I think for me the worst experience was when someone hadn't prepared before seeing me. I'd already seen this person, um, this psychiatrist beforehand, but I had to repeat my story again to them because they hadn't read their notes. And while I totally, we're all human, it's normal to forget stuff, it's normal to write things down or forget a name or so, but the actual details of... um, like my illness and everything like that, I had to repeat that again. And that can be quite distressing, I think, for a young person. Again, it was only retrospect that I realised, oh, yep, I shouldn't have had to go through that. Inappropriate comments here as well, um, here and there as well, um, were also quite, I suppose, um, they stick to you sometimes, especially when you're young and impressionable.
1: Is that is that impression of, um, is that impression that that early impression of talking about mental health with an adult and whether you trust them and whether you have that respectful relationship, whether you want to go back again, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and would it be fair to say, maybe a summary of this section is that, um, giving that adolescent the respect rather than see them as somebody coming in with you know, issues are not important and that they are not like an adult client, Um, we still need to afford them that respect and that professional courtesy to be on time and to not pick up our phones and to make sure we're prepared for our session just because they're young um, doesn't mean it's not important that we do that because it it sounds like Rosie to me that it might determine whether they see a mental health provider in the future again if they have that, that positive experience.
0: Hundred percent. It was actually my parents that pushed me to continue seeing health professionals, even though I was having a bad experience with them. Yeah. But then pushing me was what, in the end, um, helped me to get, um, helped me to recover and put me back on track, and then finally see. People who, just as Sophie sort of said, who um, what might not have been a big deal for them, they were still able to view it and understand that it was a big deal for me, validate and acknowledge my pain, try their best to empathize and understand what I was going through instead of questioning um, what I was saying and forcing me to advocate for myself, which wouldn't shouldn't have to be something that I should have had to do.
1: Absolutely. Now we have this question in the, in the Q&A box. Do young people and adolescents present different, differently in a noticeable way in comparison to adults? So I guess um, maybe the question is, do we need to be aware that sometimes adolescents present their distress differently? I'm guessing that's what the question may mean. What do you think, Sarah? Are there other things we need to keep in mind when we're talking to an adolescent that might be different from an adult?
3: I think adolescents are sharper in general. (laughs) I think they've got a really good bullshit radar. I think they're very good at picking up on the slightest nuance. And I think something I was going to add to that first question, as you were talking, Rosie, you made me think I always let young people know I'm a straight talker, I'm a frank talker. You'll always know what I'm thinking. You'll and I'll always say what I'm thinking too. You'll never be guessing. And if there are any issues, can we can you raise it with me quickly rather than like if there's something you find I do that you find disrespectful or you wondering Sarah why did you do that, bring it up early. Um, I know you don't know me that well. I'll say but um but then that way we can sort it out because that would never be my intention I think that actually often young people do say oh you know this happened or I'm wondering why you did this and I, I say thank you that's really great so creating a safe space where you can raise things I mm-hmm. think maybe adults are more oh, perhaps a little bit more formal sometimes and more socialized to yeah not be I don't know yeah I think the young people are very sharp
1: what about you so what do you think do they present differently to adults uh, I've. I agree with Sarah. They're
2: definitely, they're straight shooters. Um, Like, I think even if they don't verbally tell you that they um, are dissatisfied with what you're saying, they'll express it non-verbally in a very (laughs) noticeable way. Um, So it does make them, I think it does in some ways make them easier to work with because, you know, their reactions are very visible. Um, So, yeah, I think... One thing that I would say is that probably in comparison to adults, young people may present to you um, on the advice of a parent or, or under the influence of an adult, not necessarily entirely of their own volition. Um, and so they may be a little guarded and distrustful to start with or, or maybe not quite as willing to open up at the outset compared to an adult um, but again I think it's one of the rewarding things with working with this age group is that when, um, when you've got them on board it's such a win and um, it's such a nice feeling because you, you know you've, um, you've developed that That connection with them and you've developed that trust that's allowed them to open up and and be able to see the value in coming to see you. So that's the only really significant difference that I can think in terms of when they present initially.
1: So you've brought up a really I think common scenario that scares a lot of people who work maybe not frequently with adolescent but as clinicians we might have encountered if we have that focus in adolescence. What do you do when an adolescent comes in and they've sat down on the court couch because mom or dad's dragged them in there, and they say straight up to you, "I don't really want to be here. Mom's dragged me in here." What do you do with that, Sarah?
3: I respect that. <laughs> I I think it's really important to acknowledge that, and I'll say to the person. You don't have to see me no no one can force you um yeah you being ready and you wanting to be here is actually a really the most important ingredient and if that's not what you're wanting right now you don't need to be um yeah because i think yeah there's 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 nothing therapeutic about being forced to see someone so choice and that respect there's really important too yeah
1: and and how do you present that to the parent as well Mm. because they're expecting potentially and and I've had this experience I'm assuming so Mm. if you've had a little bit of an experience like this as well Mm. where parents bring in the adolescent where things have been really difficult and they're expecting the psychologist to be able to to get treatment done and you've said this to adolescents and what do you do in terms of responding to the parents and so how have how you handled that kind of situation?
2: Yeah it's, it's quite it is quite tricky um and you know when I when I do see a really reluctant adolescent I'll often start with um asking them why their parent thinks that they should should be here um or, or coming to see me and, and what they think about that. Um, and you know, if there are issues in their in their life, what what they might be. Um, I think if it's very, very clear that um, an adolescent client is not going to engage and and you're not going to be able to do any helpful sort of therapeutic work with them, then um, as Sarah was saying, you need to respect that that's the adolescent's decision um, and, and they say that decision is theirs. It's not yours and it's not their parents. Um, so approaching parents to, um, uh, like, I try and present that to the parents um, to say that as, as the adolescence clinician, I am their advocate and if what they're saying is that they're not ready for treatment, um, it's not the right time, or they don't they don't feel that it's necessary. Then my role as their clinician is to respect that decision. Um, I always make them very very welcome to recontact me any time down the track if things change, and make sure the adolescent is very aware of that as well um it can be very frustrating for parents who want to be really involved in in their child's treatment um but that's generally the approach that I would take and I'd be very interested to hear what Sarah thinks and also how how Rosie um thinks that situation could be approached by clinicians
1: what do you think Rosie
0: Um, Yeah, no, I think that's nice. Um, I don't think I was afforded that opportunity by my treatment team. Um, In the end, I'm really glad that my parents pushed me to get help, like just for my own safety. Um, But I do think as well, like even if the person is, Um, it's necessary for them to receive treatment. That extra bit of choice, that extra bit of autonomy can make a huge difference. Um, And there were, like, I think elements of my treatment that I could have had a choice in that would have really helped me, I think, just to engage better and then feel more valued as a result. Um, And, yeah, I do think as well it's really nice how there's uh, more, like, family peer workers out there and also now support for carers as well.
1: Absolutely. Rosie, there's a question in the Q&A box for you um, from Emily, and she's asking, did you as an adolescent feel comfortable telling a health provider that you were not getting what you wanted from your sessions?
0: Uh, That's a good question. And no, I didn't. (laughs) Um, It's only in retrospect that um, I realised that I wasn't happy with it when I finally met someone who showed me what a good health professional can actually be. Um, I think at my age, I just didn't know how to exactly articulate what I wanted and what I needed. And that's why I think um, uh, people do need to be really careful and be aware that sometimes it will be really hard for, I think, an adolescent to advocate For themselves for their needs even be able to explain what's going on for them um just in terms of um internalized shame or just the vocabulary it can be really hard but i get that that's a big ask for the clinician as well to be able to do a bit of telepathy there and also interpretation um but yeah
1: rosie do you think it would have made a difference if say the first clinician you saw actually said to you hey you have some power here right that um if something wasn't going right in session exactly what Sarah was saying right if you if you don't love this same with Sophie if you you know if if there's something you don't like you actually have the power to speak up you actually have the power to choose your health provider and um and you don't have to do this treatment if you don't want to you know we don't want to coerce you it's more of a collaboration um do you think that would have made a difference I think it
0: would have because perhaps I might have been too shy to change over anyway, but Mm -hmm. I think it would have helped me to feel as if I did have some value and at least a little bit of power within the relationship.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for thanks for answering that, that question. We've got some questions here that actually is uh, one of the questions we've got um, prepared. You know, people are asking, look, um, how do we even start a conversation about mental health, you know, um, with a young person um, in a school context maybe or even in a medical context? Sarah?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. okay. So, um, yeah, in a school context, I always think about three letters, NQR, and I think notice, question, respond and refer so in a school context i'd be um talking to a young person about what i've noticed hey i've noticed that in class you're heaps quieter or i've noticed you haven't been hanging around your best friends or i've noticed this if this is if you're i guess working in the school setting um so reflecting back to the young person the changes in behavior we've noticed then questioning asking some questions about that to find out a bit more you know um i'm wondering can you tell me a little bit about about what's going on or can you explain to me how that's affecting you or, um, yeah, um, yeah, can you describe how that's um, impacting you at the moment? And then once we've got that information and got a little bit more information, we might um, be the person ourselves who responds to that or refer on to someone who might be better placed to respond to that young person. So, yeah, in a medical context, um, yeah, I guess, I think a similar kind of approach is important, like in terms of um, how we're looking at it. But often I guess it's a 15-minute appointment, it's fast. Um, so perhaps increasing regularity of sessions so there can be more um, contact and more of a possibility to gather story and gather the sense of that young person
1: and what's going on for them. Absolutely. I hope that answers your question, um, Remington, because you asked, you know, how can we safely encourage a conversation about how they're going and their mental health and the school context? I noticed, Sarah, that, you know, a lot of the questions that you were posing, they were also open questions. It wasn't yes. just a yes, no.
3: No, no, I think focusing really intentionally opening up questions so that they can get richer responses and pausing and leaving some kind silence and just being present and ready to listen and even saying, "How hey, I'm going to leave a little bit of space here for you to have a think, but I'm here yeah. and I want, to, I want to hear. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, mm-hmm. and maybe it's a little bit to do with patience as well because sometimes the first time we get asked this question is quite confronting or it's about deciding whether we trust that teacher or we trust that health provider, um, but it's the, that conveying that warmth and that I really want to know that makes a really big difference. So what are the big indicators of distress in young people and how do we find out about these? Sophie, what do you think? What are some of the common indicators of distress? Maybe we, our young person hasn't you know, spoken up, but we might have noticed it. What are some of the things we might look out for?
2: Yeah, I think this is a really important question because, um, as I mentioned before, a, a lot of Um, a lot of the time a young person won't engage in any help seeking Um, and so it's really about the people around them noticing, um, noticing changes and I think uh, uh, indicators of Distress or, or poor mental health are usually changes in behaviour. If they're not verbalising um, themselves that their their mood is disrupted, um, so so any any change in behaviour really um, withdrawal when they're normally quite social or um, uh, you know refusing to go to school or being very reluctant to go to school, changes in their academic performance, um, all of those sorts of things. Um, are good good indicators Um, and of course I would never shy away of asking a young person about how how they are feeling or or how they are noticing their own like changes themselves so um, I, I think starting that conversation with young people can often be around what have you noticed has changed? What is, what is concerning you? Are you worried about your, your grades? Are, are you worried that you're becoming disconnected from your friends? Um, so focusing on those behavioural aspects is, is sometimes a nice way um, to determine the level of distress and whether distress is there, but also to lead into um, maybe deeper conversations around,
1: around mood and, and things that are maybe a little bit more difficult to talk about. Absolutely. Um, are there things that people do, like in terms of starting a conversation where it really shuts a team down? And I'm wondering whether I can throw this one to you, Rosie. It's not in our <laughs> structured question, but are there things that you think people might do that makes you feel like, oh, gosh, you know, I don't actually want to disclose anything? Is it somebody who's problem-solving too quickly or saying, no, you don't feel this way, there's actually a problem, what are some of your experiences where you felt like, I really don't want to talk to this this person?
0: Um, I think the worst times have been where it has been dismissed and not judged as that bad, I suppose, Um, where I've been interrupted or told to just get over it Um, or that, you know, it'll sort itself out. You just have to not do it. Um, It's that simple, just... Don't do this. Um, And, of course, that was very off-putting for me. Um, But what was being mentioned earlier, I think the times that I was most then happy to engage back was when they told me thank you for sharing Um, and they thanked me for being honest with them.
1: And also just somebody accepting what you have to say and um, not saying that it is simple, just acknowledging that it can be quite hard makes a difference. Yeah,
0: and believing what I say, yeah.
1: Yeah. So we've kind of talked a little bit about these early warning signs of distress, so if you've mentioned, you know, these behaviour changes that are sort of sneaking in, but how do you talk to an adolescent um, when they're experiencing crisis, maybe very significant distress? What's the best approach to talking to a young person, Sarah?
3: Mm, okay, so I think... Really important that we, although we might not be feeling very calm inside, that we try and press our calm button because if the person's experiencing a crisis, they're often, yeah, perhaps quite agitated or very highly distressed. So to talk slowly, to listen to listen well, um, yeah, and to, um, yeah, model calm back in a way. And I'll sometimes even slow down how I speak and I might speak more quietly too. Um yeah, um, and I think also letting them know early on that if, there's, um, if they're not safe or they're at risk, letting them know early on, reminding them that we won't be able to keep this confidential, but they'll have some choice in who we share that with and the language we use to share that so that there's some agency again too, um, that it's not all control being taken away. Um, yeah, I'll tend to use short sentences too. When people are in crisis, um, yeah, talking in a long, flowery way is not going to be helpful. So, yeah, um, calm, short sentences. Um, I also often encourage people to breathe if they're happy to with me, just to kind of gather thoughts and slow things down a little bit as well. Um, And communicating care and concern um, as well and um, wanting to help them stay safe and helping them think about what they might be able to do in that moment that would help them be safe too. Um, I think too, giving space and time as well. Um, And, yeah, also being quite direct in our questioning too about what we need to know to help keep them safe too. Um, And that might be asking about self-harm or suicidal thoughts or um, harm from others. Yeah, that could be. um, And then I think really important to the safety planning that occurs um, to make that really collaboratively um, for the young person to own that plan, for them to inform that plan, not for us to be suggesting ideas and saying, okay, you need to do this, this and this, but asking them what would be helpful right now? What what resources are available? What could be useful? What's been useful in the past when perhaps similar levels of distress had occurred? So um, regarding the young person as the expert on themselves, I think is really helpful and it helps with agency as well.
1: Now, that's really interesting that you mentioned asking the young person about suicide and harm because I know this is one of the one of the obstacles we have people are really scared to ask adolescents about suicide and self-harm because a lot of people believe that it's going to put that thought in their head. Can we speak to that? Sophie, is there any evidence of something like that? Because I know a lot of parents are so scared to even raise the issue of suicide, teachers, um, even some health providers.
2: Yeah. There's, there's very clear evidence that asking about suicide and help and self-harm doesn't promote those behaviors. So um, for everyone listening, you can feel very reassured that you are able to safely ask about. Um, these sorts of things, and you shouldn't hesitate to do so. It's not—it's not going to result in um, any suicidal or self self harm behaviours. So it's certainly something that um, that should be done um, if you're concerned about the safety of a young person.
1: Absolutely. Now, we have this um, question from Dave here um, where it says, it appears that today it is more common for young people with support to have anxiety and depression than not. How does this change the way we support young people? I guess maybe the first question is, has the prevalence rate actually increased in young people for depression and anxiety? Sophie, what does the research say in this area or has it held pretty steady in the last few years?
2: So it's difficult to speak directly to in terms of the prevalence of specific mental health disorders, because unfortunately, we just don't have enough of the epidemiological data to look at the trends. But what we do have data on is levels of psychological distress in young people. And um, through our national surveys, what we're seeing is that there are increasing levels of psychological distress, um, particularly levels that are indicative of a probable mental illness. Um, so that doesn't say what kind of mental illness young people might be experiencing, but it does suggest that um, that at, at the very least um, psychological distress has increased um, has increased over time.
1: Do you think it's got anything to do with recent occurrences, such as things like lockdown and bushfires and climate change?
2: undoubtedly um, we actually
1: we did a, a
2: survey um, in the middle of um, last year during the lockdown um, in New South Wales and we did collect data nationally and um, the levels of psychological distress probable of a min- mental illness doubled um, in the 12 to 18 year old age group um, so that's that, that was quite a shocking finding um, we, we suspect that those levels of um, psychological distress experienced by young people at that time were probably reasonably transient um, because they did um, demonstrate pretty good levels of resilience as well. Um, so I imagine if we had have done another survey um, when the lockdown had been lifted and things had calmed down, um, those levels may have reduced. Um, but certainly global pandemics can have a significant impact on mental health.
1: Do you think it has more of an impact on young people? Because uh, I'm just imagining how obstructive it is to development and milestones. I'm getting quite a few adolescents talking about just not being able to travel, not able to do exchanges, but not even having the last of things, not being able to go to their last school dance and their last class. You know, it's really so so hard Mm, mm. are you finding that in your clinical work as well sarah
3: oh completely i think it's yeah i think um i'm in melbourne and so a lot of those rituals last year the graduation with others or um yeah the end of school dinner or whatever it might be the uh, or going away together at the end of the year it didn't happen. Um, so yeah, that's been really discombobulating for um, a lot of young people. And then I've had so many university students who've dropped out of their first year of university because they said, "Well, it's all online. I don't have any relationship with these people. I'm doing projects with them. It's too hard." So yeah, a lot of young people I've worked with have made the decision to do something different um, this year and then perhaps go back to study. So it's been, yeah, it's been massive. Um, Yeah.
1: So... I just wanted to roll back to another question because I, we deviated a little bit. We <laughs> um, we talked a little bit about suicide and self-harm and that, you know, it doesn't actually put the idea into somebody's head if we do mention it. Um, but we have a question here that I'd like to direct to, to Rosie from a lived experience perspective. What has been helpful and unhelpful when disclosing and seeking help for self-harm to health professionals?
0: Um, Yeah, I think this is an important question because I have noticed in the past that it tends to be met by quite a lot of panic. And so echoing what Sarah was saying earlier, it's really important, I think, um, to just be calm because you have to be calm for them because it's the young person that's in the panicky stage. Um, I think, to reiterate, it's always nice to thank them for sharing and I've always felt like what I've been saying has been most appreciated when I have been asked why I'm doing it, the emotions behind it, and um, ways to minimise risk as opposed to simply stopping at cold turkey or um, I suppose you could say dismissing it Because, for example, the superficiality of the self-harm injuries or um, the lack of acuteness of suicidal ideation, when I think they should all actually be taken seriously, but at the same time still be treated with empathy, warmth and no
3: panic. (laughs) Mm, mm.
1: That's a really good tip, Rosie.
3: And I just might follow up on something you've said, Rosie, and I actually learnt this today, that... um, yeah, it's, it's interesting you say. You know, people might dismiss maybe superficial self harm, perhaps like light scratches, but actually, there's no correlation. The research shows between, um, I guess, low level kind of self harm and the severity of the distress. So we can't assume that um, severity of harm is connected to the severity of distress. People might be um, extremely distressed but doing very low level things. Yeah, so that's a really important point.
1: Yeah, thanks for raising that. So yeah. it's the point, Sarah, that the suffering is still the same level. Yeah. We, yeah. we don't need to rely on how severe yeah. that self-harm no. is. We need to assume that that suffering is still there. Mm,
0: mm, yeah, mm. 100%. It's mm. like um, on a parallel with eating disorders, like people can be at any weight but still be doing really severe behaviours and be suffering mm. like on a massive level, yeah. um, even if they present uh, to your art visually as healthy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, good point. Thank you.
1: So, in terms of communication format, what are you finding in terms of how teenagers communicate and their preferred platform? Do we find that adolescents prefer SMSing, social media? Is that how a therapist needs to learn to be flexible to connect? Or is it still face-to-face that works? Sophie?
2: Um, yeah, this is, this is a big part of my research that I do at the Black Dog Institute, which is really around um, how do young people want to engage with mental health services and mental health providers? Um, and unfortunately, I don't have a really satisfying answer for you because what we're really finding when we... Um, so we do a lot of consultations um, with, with young people um, to ask them these sorts of questions. Um, and what we're finding is that there really is no one-size-fits-all Um, different individuals have different preferences Um, some young people want to speak face to face with a clinician and develop an ongoing relationship um, with with that clinician Um, some young people want to remain completely anonymous um, and engage in web chats um, when it's needed with different clinicians at different times Um, and then other other adolescents um, are happy to uh, have phone cons- telephone consultations, um, so there is no one size fits all, which makes it a real challenge for people designing services. Um, but there are, um, in, in relation to your question around social media, um, Carol, we do know that young people um, use technology um, and expect things from technology in very different ways to adults, um, and and use and connect with peers via social media quite frequently. So there are research groups who are looking at um, online peer support type programs and um, peer support um, or or social moderated forums um, as as means of providing support um, and and therapeutic input. Um, However, for the most part, those sorts of platforms um, accompany um, more individualised support as well. so there's certainly, a, I suppose, there's certainly movement in terms of um, thinking about different ways to deliver treatment to young people. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's an evolving field and we still have a, a lot to learn
1: it's the take-home message maybe because you know beyond beyond a psychologist there may be gps listening and parents listening and teachers listening is that we could offer for the adolescent that may be struggling to meet with a psychologist or a doctor face-to-face that there are other platforms for them and we need to find out what what they're comfortable with
2: yeah absolutely and and there are there are effective um, digital programs that are standalone. So um, apps and and web-based programs that a young person can engage in without having to have input from a clinician, a GP or or a psychologist or a school counsellor. And they can be really good stop gaps when um, services are not available or when when people are on wait lists um, and those sorts of things. And I think I think really the take home message is uh, the young person and their health professional need to find what works for them. Um, and that's not necessarily going to be the same thing for, for everyone. So it might take a little bit of exploring.
1: Absolutely. And we've got on our screen um, some mental health apps. And for the people who are listening who can't see the screen, we've got something like This Way Up. Sarah, how about you speak a little bit to This Way um,
3: Up potentially? This, this Way Up is fantastic. Um, so they're three-month uh, cognitive behavioural therapy courses on a whole range of areas, anxiety, depression, health anxiety, insomnia, introduction to mindfulness, um, and they're low cost. And a person can work through um, a series of these at their own pace over a three-month period and revisit the sessions Um if they wish to, but really, um, skilling it's done with cartoons in a really engaging way, I think, um, and a really good opportunity to build skills at your own pace and um, in an area of interest. So yeah. I, yeah, and I've had young people um, and adults speak very highly of
1: it. Yeah, I Absolutely. like it myself yeah and there's a teen strong program that's specifically designed for adolescents and we've also got headspace which has plenty of resources as well my understanding of brave sarah this is yours potentially that we popped up here is is an anxiety
3: it is it's an anxiety um program and it's for um it's for different specific age groups so i think it's seven to twelve there's a there's a really young one then 7 to 12 and then 13 plus I think and the evidence behind it is really good and it's got a parent component too it's extraordinarily good and free and cognitive behavioral therapy so good yeah
1: absolutely and this is maybe a spot where we can say that there's actually evidence that parents just working on cbt alone to teach their child works just as well as child alone and parent child combined and there's bite back which I really love is a lot of wonderful audio clips for mindfulness that I've been getting quite a few of my teens to listen to before they go to sleep at night, especially if they're struggling with lockdown at the moment. Um, and the audio clips vary in length, so they kind of pick the one they want. Um, but they all really nicely focused on developing a sense of mindfulness. And Smiling Mind. So, does anyone know this one? Is it? Yeah, I know
2: this one. So, Smiling Mind is an, an app. Um, they uh, run it in in some schools uh but it's i think there's a small fee attached to it but it's um it basically provides uh, mindfulness Type programs across the entire age span. So there's, a, there's an adult program, a, a very young child program, a tween program, a teen program, um, and so there's a lot of resources on there. Um, it's it's all mindfulness based, um,
1: and it's been shown to be quite efficacious in reducing distress. Fantastic. Now, before we go, we've got just a few questions and I'm, I'm just going to pick one because we've got some really fantastic questions. And I do apologize to the audience if we didn't get to all of them. We do download these questions and hopefully we can respond to them later on via email. Um, we've got somebody asking, look, if you've got a young person who are f- fantastic, they turn up for sessions, they're keen to keep their appointments, but... They don't do homework, which I might want to point out is not unique to adolescents. <laughs> <laughs> no. What strategies would we use? Sarah. Mm, okay, I'd, I'd have a chat with them. I-
3: I, I'll say to them sometimes I can get a bit overexcited and the homework that we might set in session might be a bit too much because I can see what needs to happen and you can too. And we get a bit over, overly zealous. So I'll say do we need to curb it back? What's going to work differently? Um, yeah, and, and maybe, yeah, maybe it just needs to be simplified right down to something more achievable and doable. Um, yeah and we know homework in between sessions I often think it's where the change happens I often think the sessions are kind of the pit stop and it's what happens in between that's practiced and experimented with and it might be experimenting with some tasks that are more engaging or that there's more uh, motivation behind so it might I'll often say to the young person after a session what should your homework be this week so I won't set it I'll ask and and then I'll say You know, how likely is that that that's going to happen? Can you foresee any barriers to that happening? And we'll problem solve that a bit. And hopefully that increases capacity to get it done. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. I found that, um, and I, I've been working for years to try and find another name for homework.
3: Yeah, yeah, homework
1: yeah. Homework is yeah. <laughs> not, like not doing enough, like, homework. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, you know, handouts, right? We yeah. always just assume handouts is the way to go or this particular mm-hmm. format is the way to go. But there's so much innovation out there. Some of my adolescent clients have introduced me some, to some really cool apps where we're doing homework, but it's all online. Some of them are even recording their thoughts you know and to having a little bit of that flexibility really works sometimes so hopefully we've we've answered that question for you jade um and maybe as we're rounding up towards the end of our podcast um and this is probably my favorite question on on our list what are some of the major strengths in adolescence that we can bring up in conversation um, in, in having the successful conversation? I guess they are the silver linings, right. Um, what do you think, Rosie, what are some of the strengths in adolescence that's so important that we talk about?
2: I
0: think there's a lot to name. Um, I think they tend to be really resilient and strong, hardworking and diligent. Um, I think they roll really well with the punches, get a lot of stuff constantly being thrown at them, um, a lot of change, but also being aware all the time of that change because of the internet and social media. But they are able, I think, to adapt overall really well. I think they're very compassionate overall and also open-minded, um, more tolerant and um, easygoing when it comes to people who are different. Um, yeah, To name a few.
1: (laughs) To name a few. What about you, Sophie? What are some of the strengths that you see in adolescent that makes you love working in this field and that we could bring up in conversation?
2: Well, I endorse everything that Rosie just said. Um, But I suppose one of the things that I've noticed is that Young people—they are really compassionate. Um, we run a lot of research trials where we recruit young people, and we often ask them, "Why have you signed up to do this um, this research trial?" And it's not because they get a free treatment. Um, it's, because, it's usually because they want to—they want to contribute um, uh, to our understanding of mental health and, and to reduce stigma and to contribute to improving the lives of, of other young people who might be um, experiencing similar things to them. So I think there is this, there is this social conscience um, in young people and you see it around their concerns about the environment and, um, and all of those sorts of things. So I, I think um, they haven't become maybe as, as jaded and cynical as adults um, and so it's a, it's a real strength um, that shines through and, and it's, a, it's a lovely quality that they have.
1: Absolutely. What about you, Sarah? What do you think are some of, like, great strengths?
3: Yeah, I think their openness too. I think they're sometimes us adults, myself included, we can become more rigid and more inflexible and more stayed in our ways. But I think a lot of young people have a great openness. Um, there's often, even in young people whose mood is low, there's often an optimism about the promise of life and what could be ahead and what might be ahead. Um, and I think there's, like um, both Rosie and Sophie said, there's a deep care for others. And I think something I notice about this generation that gives me so much heart is their capacity and voice discuss mental health. I wasn't there when I was 15, 16, 30 years on. I see this great capacity of young people to talk about um, well-being, to talk about themselves with honesty and to talk to each other um, and form really close relationships too um, through that frankness. So yeah and they know how to have fun and that they are playful, they can be playful. It's yeah it's a there are lots of great strengths. Yeah, Yeah so
1: absolutely I get some of my best laughs in session oh I laugh so much yeah 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 <laughs> um so Rosie as a final question if we were to give a take-home message to our practitioners who are listening in what do you think is the most helpful and important thing health professionals can do for young people Ooh. Um, Big one, right? Yeah. But we want a lift experienced person to to send home an important message to practitioners listening.
0: There's multiple things, and I'm thinking I can cheat and push them all in one sentence. Um, <laughs> I suppose to respect them as individuals with their own, I suppose, story and experiences that are as like bright and diverse and intense as yours. And to just be really kind to them. Yeah, just being nice and respectful. Um, Yeah.
1: Absolutely. I I think one of the things I always keep in mind when I'm working with adolescents is that maybe they're ambivalent about coming to see a a health professional, but maybe this is their first experience and if you make it a positive one, even if they don't stick with you, Next time they'll go, Well, because I had a good experience, I'm willing to come back on my own as an adult. Um, so that's yeah, absolutely. So, just want to thank our amazing panel members tonight. Hopefully, you got some great tips. I'm going to share my screen again and, um, and wanted to just remind everyone that we have lots of resources um, at the Black Dog Institute. Um, Sophie Lee um, is doing a lot of research there and I know that there's stuff on the Black Dog Institute website. Um, a reminder as well that we've got the Essential Network, which is developed for our health providers um, and their mental health, My Compass. A lot of people are asking about security of apps um, and you know whether there's anything that they would recommend. And I always recommend My Compass um, as a website um, and you can also look up potentially an app as well um, and the Black Dog Institute online clinic um, that does see patients so reminder that we're, we're there um, and we also have COVID resources at the moment please do visit our website because we've got recent articles looking at how parents can cope with homeschooling again I think I might be needing that one. Um, keeping kids safe on screen during lockdown and a long lonely lockdown dealing with separation anxiety. So some really interesting articles that's just popped online. Uh, please do check us out. I want to say a really big thank you to, to our panel members tonight. Rosie, Sophie, Sarah, it was such an interesting discussion um, and you sharing your expertise and experiences tonight has been really valuable. And apologies to some of the questions that we didn't get to tonight, Um, we do download them and hopefully we can respond to them um, in a follow-up email. Thank you, everyone, and good night.